stop broadcasting on Facebook tonight. All right, gang, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up uh, where we left off. So, and we left off last time in verse 5 uh, with Paul telling us that we have been predestined, he says, to be presented to the Father as the children of Jesus Christ. So, and the reason that we stand before God in Christ is because of all that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And so, as he walked on this earth, Jesus walked a perfect life, and it's something that we, a lot of times people don't understand why. You know, why did Jesus live a perfect life? Well, he lived it for you, and did it for you, and for me. And so, in order to accomplish all the things that the law required, of course, then the Bible says he shed his blood on Calvary as God's perfect sacrifice and took the penalty of our sin. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Just that simple. So thus, he has predestined us, as Paul has been saying over and over again, that we might be adopted as his children according to his good pleasure and will. And so now we're going to see Paul repeat this same phrase, this good pleasure of his will. And there's an interesting passage uh, in the book of Revelation. You don't have to turn there, but you can just jot it down. It's Revelation 4, verse 11. Here's what it says. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I love that verse. Paul spoke about the good pleasure of his will and the fact that you've been chosen as we've been studied. You've been picked by God, predestined to be the children of God, that we might receive, the that he might receive, excuse me, pleasure from our willful obedience to him. And so that you might be faithful, obedient children in which uh, that which the Father has called us to be. And, and, and God takes note of that. And when I was putting my notes together, it, it reminded me of the issue with Job. You remember Job? And if you've read it, it says that the sons of God came before Job one day, and Satan came also. And the Lord asked him, he says, where have you been? And he says, well, I've been walking to and fro throughout the earth. And the Lord asked him a very interesting question. Have you considered my servant Job? And we know that he did because Satan knew him by name, which isn't unusual because you remember in the book of Acts when the sons of Siva, you know, um, went in and, of course, was trying to cast out the devil. And what did the demon said, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? You know, so he had considered Job. But God said that Job was a, a, an upright man who shunned evil and he walked after good. And Satan asked him a very interesting question. He says, does Job serve you for no reason? Is, there, is, you know, is it for nothing? He says, no, on the contrary. You've put a hedge of protection about him. And look at how you've blessed him. But take that away. Take that away. Satan said, and, and I, could, I could cause him to curse you to your face. Now, it is interesting and, and that God allowed Satan to remove the things that Job had. He wasn't allowed to touch his life, but he was allowed to touch his stuff. 
And I think that's interesting because Job then begins to go through this very painful process of being stripped of his possessions. I don't know if you've ever been through that, but it can be painful. You know, his family even and his friends. And it's not in my notes, but and when I talk about Job and his friends, I always say that tongue-in-cheek because the Bible calls them miserable comforters because these were guys who Job went to for encouragement and all they could pick on was what he had failed to do or something they perceived that he failed to do. And they really came at him and they weren't no comfort to him at all. They were miserable comforters. But Job goes through this process, you know, of, of having things taken from him where Satan had stripped him of everything. And so here he is at the end, of course, laying on the ground. And even his wife told him to curse God and die, you know. But Job replied, naked I came into this world, and naked I shall return. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Now that's a, that's a man who understands his position in Christ. And it is true when you think about it, you know, that we came into this world with nothing, and you will leave with nothing. Here recently, as you probably know, my mother um, went home to be with the Lord just last week. And even though at one time, like all of us, she had a lot of stuff. She had property. She had, she had everything. And, but over the years, as we got older, as she got older, she began to eliminate stuff. Where in the end of her life, her life had been sifted down to a few handful of boxes. But it was what those boxes contained that really opened my eyes to my mother. One box, and I won't go into a long dissertation on it, but one box contained all of her Bibles, her poetry that she had written about the Lord, and everything else that talked about her relationship with Christ. And that really, in the end, is all it's going to matter anyway. You know, where do you stand with the Lord? And I was talking to a young man yesterday whose walk with the Lord is pretty shaky. And I told him, I said, every one of us, no matter how old or how young you are, your life is being sifted whether you know it or not. Eventually, you're going to be, you know, you're going to die. If the Lord doesn't come back first and take us, you, you, we're all going to have a personal rapture at one time. Or another. Death is going to come. It's inevitable. What will people say about you when they're going through your stuff? What will your stuff say about you, you know? Because it, it was interesting. And I learned stuff about my mother that I, I hadn't even known. Good stuff, you know, about things that were dear to her. And it was amazing to me. But Job found himself destitute of everything while he was still living. But yet, what did he say? You know, naked I was coming into this world. Naked I will leave. You know, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we're told in the scriptures that in all these things, Job did not curse God, nor charge him Foolishly, How many times I have heard people charge God foolishly or, act or, or even use the term that they were angry with God? I've got to be honest with you, man. I, I don't, uh, that's not wise. <laughs> you know, it's not wise. And it's crazy because God is holy. God desires to have the, the same relationship with you that he did with Job. He wants us to have the same attitude as Job, you know? I like another passage that Job said, or another verse that he said. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job's trust in God could not be shaken. You know, Satan was trying to insinuate and mistakenly understood 
that Job's love for God was based upon the things that he had. You know? And I realize why people believe that, but it's just not true. Because God does bless his children. If you're a child of God, you know that's true. He does. Now, granted, it's not the extreme that some preachers make it, but God has blessed me greatly. He has you. And, you know, so, but it's not the reason that we love him. Because sometimes that'll be put to the test. You know, we heard testimonies tonight. You know, people asking for prayer, for physical ailments and those type of things. Those are tests of your faith. Those are testing of times, just like Job went through. You know, and what did Job say? Well, naked I came in, naked I'll leave. But blessed be the name of the Lord. God wants us to have the same type of attitude that Job did. You know, God takes pleasure in your love and obedience to him. And that's really what Paul's kind of driving home here as we get into this portion of scripture. But it's according, it says, to his good pleasure. And I like that, and his will. Look at verse six. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. If you're taking notes, you ought to make note of that. Accepted in the beloved. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So God made us accepted in Christ. You know, today, so many times that people are looking for acceptance in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes, unfortunately, they look for it in the wrong place. When really, in, in, in reality, it's our acceptance from God is what we really desire. Everybody's been born with that God-shaped hole in their heart. And really, Jesus is the only one who can fill it. And until you really come to that, you're never going to be accepted. Because there's no acceptance outside of Jesus. No man will ever be, you know, accepted by the Father. Jesus said, no man comes unto me, unto the Father except through me. And so, we're only accepted in Christ. So when we stand before the Lord, and in him we have been, of course, redeemed uh, through his blood. And some Bibles actually take that out, if you've noticed that. Maybe, uh, hopefully your Bible doesn't, but some of the Bibles have, especially in Colossians, where it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Some Bibles actually remove that, that passage, but th the fact is, is it's true. We're accepted because of what he did for us on Calvary. You've been purchased, bought with a price. Thus, you know, there on, on Calvary, the last thing that Jesus said was tostelestai. You know, it is finished, you know, paid for. It's done. So we're all, you know, we were at one time, as Paul said, we were all slaves to sin, but now we have been set free by Jesus Christ. So Jesus paid my debt you know, he took care of what I owed because we all owe God. We come into this world wretched, born into sin. And Jesus, who knew no sin, paid the debt for that sin. So, you know, I, he paid a debt that he did not owe because I owed a debt that I could not pay. And it's all because of Jesus. Thus, he has redeemed us from a life of slavery to the flesh that we might become the children of God by faith through the blood of Jesus Christ. I was watching a, a group the other day who was, um, it, was it was a cult and we, we kind of were studying. But one of the things, and you know, they, they try to put on this happy face, but they're so ate up with craziness, you know. But their only mode of salvation was baptism. And why anybody ever came to that idea is beyond me because the Bible's very clear. We even sing a hymn that says, what can wash away my sins? You know the song, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's really the case. And, and so often we forget that. Is baptism important? Sure it is. 
but it has no ability to save. Only Jesus has the ability to save and what he did on Calvary. Look at verse 8. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Take note of that. So often we, we, we find it hard to know what the mystery of his will is, but the Bible says he's made known, it's made known to you according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. So once again, Paul says, according to the good pleasure of God, which he has purposed in himself, he has made known the mystery of his will. And what is that mystery? It's what I was telling this young lady about today. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know that, she was uh, doing a study in First John and she called me up and she said, what does this mean? Because it's there and, and, and he says, you know, of course, talking about the love of Christ and being in Christ. And he says, and by this, we have boldness in the day of judgment, you know, for as he is, so are we in this present world. And this young woman who I was ministering to today has struggled with her salvation. She has. And I said, that's the good news, right? In one single verse, if I had to pick one verse out of the Bible that really nailed what the mystery of God is, and that's Christ in you, it's right there in 1 John, you know, that as he is, so are we in this present world. That's why we have the boldness to come to the throne of God at judgment. Because the fear, and, and she was really focusing on the verse where it says, you know, perfect love cast out all fear. And she was coming to the wrong conclusion. She goes, I, you know, because I have fears, she said. I said, everybody has fears. But that's not what he's talking about. The fear he's talking about is in the very next word. Just read on, darling. Read on. You know, because it's judgment. It's the fear of judgment. Now, unfortunately, today that we're living in, a lot of people don't fear the judgment. because They don't fear God because they don't believe in God. They don't believe in his word. They don't, believe, they don't even acknowledge him. But that's, that's a whole other sermon. But for those of us who do believe, we have no fear of judgment. The fear of judgment has been taken away in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has bestowed upon you or imputed, the Bible says, his righteousness to you by faith alone. So you can, at the end, even after we go on to be with the Lord, you have no fear of judgment. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, Romans 8.1. You know, it's that mystery. What mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, look at verse 10. He says that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So when Paul spoke of this dispensation of the fullness of time, he was simply talking about when the cycle of time is complete or when the time of the Gentiles has come in. When that last Gentile gives his life to the Lord, you know, we're going home. Now, when is that? I have no idea. But I, I wouldn't doubt that it's going to be very soon. If you just look at the, how the world is going, you know, how much more time could there be? But Paul calls it the dispensation of the fullness of times. You know, when that's complete, when the history of man has been completed, then it's, it's over with, buddy. We're going home. That's all there is to it. So, here recently, we've been uh, talking about doing a prophecy conference, and uh, we're still working on that. I was actually talking with uh, J.D. Frog in, in Hawaii today, and so uh, 
Uh, but we're looking at some options on that. But most Bible teachers agree that if you really believe in the rapture of the church, if you understand the coming of Christ, uh, you're, you're at the door. Jesus has to be close. It has to be soon. Because there's nothing left to be done. You know, Israel has already become a nation. 1948, I even asked for hands the last time, and some of you were alive in 1948. Some of you remember when that happened, you know? And so he said that this generation would not pass to all these things be fulfilled. So we're, we're close, you know? And we just look at how people have gotten crazy, you know? When you look at how the world, just the, the thinking of the world. Sunday I was talking about the love of God uh, in, in our Sunday morning. The world knows nothing of that. The world really doesn't even know love. It, they, they use it. It's an ambiguous term to them. And they apply it to anything, you know. And the world has gone crazy. You know, and I'm a big student of history, and I know that a lot of people who were living during World War II and saw the rise, and Mom always there, she starts laughing because she remembers it. So, you know, but when you study that, and I understand why people would have thought that the world had went mad at that time and that the Lord was around the corner. Well, Paul believed that too. Paul believed very dearly, very, you know, he really thought that he would live in the time when Jesus would return. But there was things that even Paul had spoke prophetically as by the Holy Ghost that hadn't happened yet. I don't know any prophecy teacher to this day who would tell you that there's anything left to be done according to Scripture. It's all done. So really we're living on borrowed time, if you will. And that's not a bad thing. Man, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but I was talking with a pastor just a few days ago, and uh, I like the guy. But I says, man, brother, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I say let's blow this popcorn stand and go home. You know, I'm, I'm serious. And here's what he told me. He said, oh, I hope not. That's what I said. I went, excuse me? Well, here's their reasoning. And I, and I understand on the surface it sounds spiritual, okay? He goes, well, there's so many people that need to, to come to Christ. I said, brother, listen to me. On the day that Jesus returns for his church, every person that was supposed to be saved will have been saved. Nobody is going to be left behind that didn't want to be. You understand what I'm saying? Listen God isn't going to come and take people knowing that there were those left. That's why Paul says here in our text, when the fullness of that time has come, when the fullness of time, when it's concluded, or as he also says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, you know, there's that dispensation, which he uses here. There's that doling out of time. God works according to time frames, and he's working according to one right now. We just happen to be in the last one, you know. It is interesting you know, in the Old Testament, he says that Israel would be out of, the, out of the land for two days. And on the third day, he says, I will bring them back into the land. Well, Israel was out of the land for two centuries, or two, two millennia, 2,000 years. And on the third, beginning of the third, he brought them back into the land of Israel. And now, Israel has been established since 1948. And now, Jerusalem. Now, even though God has always called it the capital now the capital is actually recognized first by the United States and now you're seeing other countries recognize it which is interesting to me but once again it's all according to the prophetic utterance of God and time is short which is why we want to be preaching the gospel and leading more people to it so 
verse 10 once again, he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together all in one things in Christ. So there was in time or in eternity past, there was a time when there was only one government really in the universe that governed all things. Of course, that was God. Everything was in harmony with God. Everything walked in harmony with God. I, you know, we can't even imagine such a world. But there was a time when that was the case. Until the Bible tells us that one of the angels, you know, uh, who was perfect in wisdom, it says, and beauty, and all his ways. As a matter of fact, he was a, a musician, which kind of breaks my heart because I'm a musician too. But it says that when he would walk, timbrels was built into his body that he would play. So he was kind of the worship leader for God. But one day, he decided he was going to exalt himself above the Most High, and he was going to be like God. In that particular moment, this second government formed in the universe, and of course, it was Satan who wanted to be its head. And it's been a battle of dark and light ever since. And so, the struggle with the universe began on that day. It's that good against evil. The earth, my friends, is in the center of the conflict even to this day. Man, if you just typed in wars that are going on right now in the world, I did this the other day, there are so many wars. Now, you don't hear about them all on the news uh, because there are just so many of them. There's conflicts here, conflicts there. What's the Bible say? In the last days, there would be wars and rumors of wars, you know, upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity of the seas and the waves. I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, the conflict of good and evil in the world, the suffering, the wars, the evil that goes on, are all the result of the initial rebellion against God. Man, of course, is caught up in that same rebellion. He rebels against God. Man does not live as God would have him to live. You know, they talk like they want to have peace and safety, but they don't. They walk in total, total rebellion against everything that God has done or the standard that God has set up for them. You know, they, the way, you know, the world will say that it wants it. They want peace, but they really don't, you know, because they do nothing to do it. Once again, they can't know it. First Corinthians chapter 3, they just can't, you know, but nonetheless. But there's coming a day. We're told this in the scriptures that Satan and all those who rebel with him will be cast into Gehenna and into outer darkness. You know, God is going to give them what they wanted. And it says the reason they're going to be cast in outer darkness is because they love darkness more than they do light. So God's simply going to accommodate them as to what they wanted in the first place. So in the book of Revelation, at the end of all things, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, Revelation 21.1. God will restore all things. And he has already started that. And that restoration, of course, is through his son, Jesus Christ. I was thinking when my mother, when I was preaching her funeral, you know, she was so frail when she passed. Just a tiny thing. She only weighed 85 pounds, I think, maybe even less. Just tiny. She never was a big woman anyway, but she was so tiny. And I couldn't help but think, you know, that one of these days, that body's going to be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you know, and this mortal, it says, will put on immortality. No more sickness, no more pains. I don't know how much pain you go through, but I live with it anymore. You wake up in the morning, and, you know, and the old bones are creaking a little bit, you know. Sometimes they creak a lot. 
And sometimes it's just painful. But one of these days, <laughs> and I think it's soon, very soon, as the song says, we're going to see the king, and the fact is, is everything is going to be changed. Never lose track of that, gang. This is not our home. We are but pilgrims. And I told that young pastor who said, well, I hope not. I said, brother, I, listen, you need to readjust your, theolo your theology because we need to look forward. As a matter of fact, here's what the Bible says in 1 John, that those who have this blessed hope, what hope? The hope of the second coming, the hope that Jesus comes. Those who have this blessed hope purifies themselves even as God or the Lord is pure. Now think about that. You know, if we really believe that Jesus' imminent return is here, you know, we're living according to, you know, any second now. I mean, we, it, literally, we could not, it, it's possible that we might not get out of here. How ought we to live, you see? That's really what the question is. How should we live then? You know, now granted, we're going to plan like we got 100 years left. But we're going to live like it's going to happen today. Because we don't know when the coming of the Lord is. But those that have this blessed hope, he says, purifies himself even as he is pure. So ultimately, ultimately, in the universe, all things will be corrected. You know, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to fix and restore all things. I mean, just to think about it, I heard, a, I was witnessing to a Jehovah Witness one time because they really believe that they're just going to inhabit the earth. That's what they believe. And I told him, I said, you do realize how messed up this world is, right? And he was like, well, you know, and I said, no, 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 listen, this world is messed up. This world is messed up. You know, I was in the environmental field. I made most of my living in the environmental field. It ain't fixable, gang. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be a cons you know, conservationist. And conservation's one thing. But thinking you're going to fix <laughs> what is a... They were taking core samples up in the North Pole, okay? Keep this in mind. And we're talking core samples that, are, that go back, you know, way down you know, almost to the water table, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. And when they pull them samples out, they do what I used to do. They analyze it. And what they analyzed it for was contaminations, VOCs, SVOCs. Those are volatile organic compounds and semi-volatile organic compounds. TPH, total petroleum hydrocarbons, those type of things. And guess what they found? They found VOCs and SVOCs and TPHs and all the things that are in the world in the North Pole. My point being, that's how deep and to the depth of the contamination of the world that we're living in, which is why the scripture says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because this one's going to be done away with. It's going to have to be. Do you realize, and think about this, and I'll go on. Over in Rome right now, the Romans were great at extracting gold. Now, if you, if you don't know how gold is extracted, let me give you a little lesson here real quick. It's been done the same way for centuries, and it's still done this way. Over in Africa, they still do it. You're not going to believe me when I tell you this. Maybe you will. We use mercury. Okay? You know mercury? That stuff you used to play with when we were kids? How many played with it when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. Now you know why you don't feel good. Okay? And I did too. 
because I've been born and raised in California. When I was a kid, we were my my dad was a gold miner. He liked to go out in a hobby. He did it as a hobby. We go out and pan for gold. And so, and, and, and gold dust is really cool when you see it, but how do you get the gold dust out? It's too small. Well, you get your big old jar of mercury, <laughs> you pour it into the pan, take your finger, stir it up. <laughs> Mercury's a gold magnet. Most people don't know that, but it's a gold magnet. What do you do with that mercury then? Oh, then we pour it into this little <laughs> crucible out there in the field. Then we fire up a torch, and then you evaporate it while you're standing over it, breathing it in, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and we wonder why we don't feel good. They still do it to this day over in Africa, except on a large scale. When they're extracting gold from the ground, they literally put all the dirt that has the gold dust in it in a big 55-gallon drum. A man, a human, gets into that barrel wearing shorts, nothing else. They put water in it, and then they pour mercury in it. And he takes his feet, and he stomps it up and down. And the mercury absorbs, of course, the gold. Then they simply dump the water and everything else back into the river that it came from with the mercury in it, except most of the mercury they, they contain. It has the gold they pour into a crucible, then they melt it off. The Romans were the ones who really came up with that process. And it's been done that way. There's places in Rome, and the reason I'm telling you that is where they smelted or you know melted the gold out but the areas are so contaminated with mercury that grass won't grow. It never has grown for like 2,000 years. The, the, the earth is contaminated. That's all, it's something you probably already know. I used to sell, uh, after I retired from the laboratory, I got into selling uh, really high-end water purifiers, which I have in my house. And we used to work for a lot of municipalities. And one of the funny things about city water is people think that it's safe. Now listen, I want you to keep this in mind. We do all things by what? By faith, okay? Now we eat by faith. If you ever, want, if you ever question that, just like yesterday, I was <laughs> looking on Facebook, and here was a, an article from uh, Fox News showing a guy in Wendy's, okay? You know Wendy's? <laughs> and he's literally taking a bath in the kitchen sink of a Wendy's, okay? Now, if you think that's some odd thing, that's, you know, like, oh, that's a one in a million, I got news for you. <laughs> I used to, we used to do all kinds of inspections. Trust me, it's nothing, it's nothing new. So when you eat, you eat by faith, and when we drink, we drink. We do all things by faith. I'm not trying to scare you. What I'm trying to show you is that it's not fixable. There's only one thing going to fix this world, gang, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one thing going to restore all things, and that's God, just as he restores you and me. You know, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. But there's coming a time when this old, this whole earth, and even the heavens, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. It's going to be fixed. So... Walk by faith, live by faith, enjoy the time that you have here with the Lord. It very well may be a short time, but, uh, you know, realize it's not going to be fixed. Look at verse 11. We're going to finish up pretty soon. He says, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Wow. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Man, I love that. You know, remember, our inheritance is in Christ. First Peter. 
And you can turn there if you want. It's in chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5, and here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Man, who are kept, he says, by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, you know, because we're the children of God, we have an inheritance. I was telling this to that young lady today, I says, man, when you start doubting anything about God, think about what Christ has done for you. As he is, the Bible says, so are we in this world. What has he done for me? I said, how is Jesus? If you are the way he is in this present world, according to the Apostle John, then how is Jesus? Is Jesus holy? Absolutely. Is Jesus righteous? Absolutely. You know, I mean, he is consecrated. He, everything you can imagine, it, it, that's what he is. And God sees you. If you're in Christ, God sees you the same way. And actually, more than that, you are that in a very real way. And here's what she said. She goes, well, yeah, but I, st I still sin. And I said, yep, there's the rub. You do. But here's the beauty of it. See, sanctification is both progressional and positional. You know, Paul the Apostle wrote in, a book in, in Romans, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, sometimes I do things I don't want to do and sometimes... When I want to do what's right, I don't do it. Who shall deliver me from the bondage of this death? He said, I thank God through Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus. I do not in my wildest imagination, I cannot imagine how people live today without Christ, without the, the knowledge that he has already taken care of it. I can't imagine it, but they do it all the time. But man, to see somebody who comes to the knowledge of Jesus, when you lead somebody to the Lord, and you watch the transformation that comes upon their life. It is absolutely amazing. Because even in yourself, look at the changes that God has done for you. This is what I told this young woman today. I said, your problem is you're not looking in the mirror. You know, listen, I was a weightlifter for years. And I know I don't look like it now, but I was. But you know what? It's that barely noticeable difference. Because as you go to the gym every day and you keep lifting, you keep lifting and you keep putting a little more weight, the, the muscle gets stronger, and you get, you get more powerful in those areas. You don't see the difference. Why? Because you're looking in the mirror every day. You don't see no change. You'll begin to get discouraged. But go across, and you'll go, go visit somebody who hasn't seen you in six months. And what do they say? Wow. You go to the gym? They notice it. And it's the same way in Christ. You very well may not notice the difference, but I'll guarantee you, those who haven't been around you in a while, you get around them, they'll notice it. You know, when you start talking about Jesus and, and they give you that look, <laughs> hopefully you can just lead them to the Lord. But they'll notice it. Absolutely they'll notice it. But we have this inheritance being predestined, he says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. You know, take notice of that. You know, God... It's according to his own will, the counsel of his own. God doesn't ask anybody's advice. Maybe you've already noticed that. He doesn't need to. He certainly doesn't need mine. You know, I mean, we all have our opinions and we think, well, you know, 
here's the way God ought to be doing it. But he doesn't ask us our advice because he doesn't need our advice. I am very comfortable allowing him who knows all, sees all, and does all to be in all control of my life. I'm good with it. And we all need to be, to be honest with you. So, verse 12. That we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So God takes pleasure in your trust of Jesus. I think that's amazing. He genuinely loves to see his people trusting in his son. I think that's amazing. Sometimes our trust is tested, though. We talked about this earlier. We often find ourselves having to decide whether to trust God in all things. It's easy to trust God when all things are going in my favor. You know, when the bills are paid, when the car isn't broke, when the, you know, when the health is good, no foreseeable medical bills, no foreseeable, when everything's going good, it's like, wow, anybody can go, hey, praise the Lord, you know. But it's those times when we're tested, when we're put to the test when things aren't going our way, when the health has went, when you aren't as strong as you used to be, those are when we need to trust God the most and to not waver, as Job didn't waver, even when he was being tested, you know, to trust in God, even when times are tough, you know. But that's a choice that you have to make. And I found myself many times in God when I didn't understand what he was doing. Many times I didn't understand. But through the years I have found that he's faithful in all things, even when I don't understand it. And I've often told people, people say, well, what's the Lord doing? I, and I've said, I don't know, but I know he knows, and I'm good with it. So, you know, men make their plans, but it's God that directs their steps. Let, just let him do it. But trust in the Lord. Just hang on to Christ, you know, and, and, and put your faith in him because he knows what he's doing, even when you're being tested, you know. Because somewhere down the road, as you come through it, you're going to be able to help somebody else who's going through it too, you know? So if my trust is genuine, as I trust in him in the dark places, when I'm trusting in him in my suffering, when I trust in him when I don't understand what he's doing, it brings greater praise, as the verse says, to his grace, you know, when I simply trust him in all that he does knowing that it's my good that he wants. Look at verse 13. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So you're sealed. Ain't that amazing? I love it, yeah. You're sealed. He says, and he's been, you've been given the earnest of your inheritance. And of course, most of you probably know this, but for those who are listening by radio, I'm going to tell you again. An earnest is in real estate. If you go to buy a piece of property and you're really serious about it and you want to put a contract on it, they'll let you do that. But if it's a good real estate agent and the property they know is going to go quick, they will encourage you to put down earnest money. Put down earnest money on it. Put something down on it. Because what does that say? It says you're serious and you are going to return and redeem it. You're going to buy it. You are going to purchase it. So when Jesus Christ paid for us on the cross of Calvary, 
once he ascended to the Father, the Bible says he sent the Holy Spirit and he sealed you unto the day of redemption. And that is considered the earnest of the Spirit, the down payment, if you will, the promise that God's going to finish what he started because he started it in Jesus. But this body, man, I'm telling you, it, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not there yet. And it won't be on this side of heaven, but it will be. And the fact is, you've been sealed with the Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. And you've been marked with his mark, so he knows who is his. So he's made the down payment. So this body, as you well know, is not going to be redeemed. It's not what's going to come out of the grave. You know, we're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But it's going to happen. You know, it just isn't going to happen today. Or will it? It very well could. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your time and, and, and your word, Lord Father, and the promise of your coming. Lord, I pray that you would be with each of us, Lord Father, as we consider the blessed hope of your return. And we look at a world, Lord Father, that is seemingly falling apart but is in dire need of the gospel. Lord, give us the wherewithal to reach out to our family and our friends and to those who are close to us, Lord Father, that don't know you. And give us the words, Lord Father, help us to be that witness, to draw them to faith in you before the time is up, before the time of the Gentiles is coming fully in and before you return so that none, Lord Father, um, would go without hearing. We, we, we love you and we thank you, Lord Father, but we do say, even though, Lord Father, that we don't understand some things, come, Lord Jesus, come. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.